call your clients, tell them that you are shutting down the company and think about a new business. And I said to the investor, you're not the same. We don't have plan B. We're going to make it. For the episode today, I'm thrilled to welcome Rodrigo Tonini, founder and CEO at Conta Simples, a Sao Paulo-based financial platform for SMBs that has recently raised $24 million Series A from the Tinder founder Justin Martins Jam Fund, Valor Capital, Base 10 Partners, Y Combinator, and Big Bets. Rodrigo, it's a pleasure to have you as my guest. Welcome to the J-Curve. Hi, Olga. It's a pleasure having this talk with you. I would love to start with a little bit on you. Tell me, how did you make your way into the world of tech entrepreneurship and come to found Conta Simples? That's a great question. I started my journey in the entrepreneurship during college. I studied at INSPER. It's a business school here in Brazil. The first semester there, I met other people that had the same intention of like starting a business, running a company. And we created this group called Liga de Predadores in Portuguese, Entrepreneurship League in English. There, I met great people and uh, now great entrepreneurs, uh, many mentors. One of them was Andrei Stritch, a founder of Stoll. Others was Petsu Pira, Guizana Prajano, and some others. And since I had this exposure to these people, I realized that this was the only thing I would like to do after college. I worked at Stoll when they had like 30 employees, but I didn't stay that much. I, I was trying to do both at the same time, so that is where I also work at Stoll. Both trade stores are very tense, so I had to decide one of them. I decided to stay at Inspire at that time. I also worked in a consulting firm during college as well. It was very good in terms of learning, have exposure to big companies and having this strategic planning mindset. But taking risks was a natural path for me. So I decided to quit this consulting firm and start a first business that was a fintech as well. We did a scale and I decided to pivot and start consulting. What was the first business? Why did you have to pivot? So the first fintech was a digital wallet and our idea was to make a wallet to enable transactions through QR code. At that time, we didn't have peaks in Brazil. We were studying many different business models around the world and we saw at Paytm, Alipay, WeChat Pay in China and in India and we realized that in Brazil it was an opportunity and we decided to attack one very specific angle the benefits space. At that time, the merchants, the restaurants, they were paying like 5-7% for the benefits cars transaction. So the idea was to reduce the cost of transaction. I had Barger, his family had a big business in this restaurant space. And we decided to start doing this digital wallet and to disintermediate the benefits through QR code payments into this ecosystem of restaurants. The idea and the golden market made total sense. But as soon as we start to try to operate it, we faced many, many problems. The monetization was very hard. The status quo, the customers, the users, it was natural for them to go to the cashier, pay card and get the wallets. Also, this was not a must-have feature or must-have product. We didn't have a stickiness to the product. So when I look at it and all this complexity of the business model, I understood that we wouldn't scale this business. At that time, I was the founder responsible for all the finance. So I had to open the checking account to the bank to deal with the accountant to do all the bank reconciliation and all the bureaucratic process, finance operation teams are based every day. So the first thing I realized, we don't have banks focused in SMBs. We don't have it in Brazil. Second, I started to see this business model, digital banks, digital financial systems, focus only SMBs in other countries, Europe and United States. Our first benchmark was called Tool in France. We saw Tide in England. We saw also Brax. I realized in Brazil, we had opportunity because 35, 36% of Brazil's GDP comes from SMBs. 
and wind projects. Why do you think local big banks didn't attend to the needs of SMBs and are still missing on the train? Yeah, that's a very telling question. In my opinion, the big companies, once they get big, the revenues, the multiples, they don't look to niches. They don't look to specific verticals. If you're growing like 50%, 100%, 100 k monthly to 200 to 500 to 1 million to 2 million. This is amazing for a startup, for a large corporation. This is nothing. And in the SME space, there are a lot of verticals. We have retail companies, we have startups, we have professional services, we have the informals, we have industries. At every single vertical, they have their own specificity to deal with the money. So it's very hard to build a high quality of products that serve all the verticals at the same time. So you need to niche in order to create differentiation. But when I look at the big banks, they want to do this, especially for the SMBs, where it's very difficult to monetize with credit. So they prefer to focus in the larger corporations. They prefer to focus in high quality individuals for the individual accounts. That's why also open space for a new bank, for Inter and for some others. And why new bank, Inter and the digital banks that were focused in the individuals didn't focus in the SMB space because the product is very different. Then SMB, they have to do the accounts of, they have to do bank reconciliation. When they start to grow, they need to create flexibility in terms of user's permission. You need to do payroll. You need to rebuild the product entirely. And it's not the focus of them because they are in a growth phase. And I realized that was an opportunity for us to attack. And how did you guys come together as a team? Great question. So, Fernando, my co-founder, we worked in the previous startup, but I met him because I used to play basketball and I have, I still have this friend who worked at Hubbard Half. It's a consulting company for hires, high level executives. And I asked him, I need to talk to someone that understands the payment industry, but with a tech approach, with a tech mentality. Do you know any person? He connected me with one person that was working at Seattle and this person connected me with Fernando. And Ricardo I met during the Stone experience. So when I worked there, Ricardo was one of the first sales managers that Stone hired in 2014. And he worked at Stone like for almost four years and then he went to Creditus. But I, we always keep this relationship alive. When I tried to do the QR code payment fintech, I also uh, went to him to get some feedbacks and then when I was starting Contasintos, I also went to ask some advices for his view of the product. And he loved the idea. And we started to work together that ended up being a partner as well and a co-founder. Ask for advice, you got wonderful team members. Exactly. exactly. This is one thing that I always focus, have a great network because especially during college, that was the easiest way to meet great people, to get to know great founders, great entrepreneurs, great elected, great investors. I remember when we talked before the recording, you mentioned that despite the fact that you saw this huge and interesting opportunity, it was really hard to raise the initial capital. Was there any moment in the life cycle of Conte Simples where you thought, oh damn, this business is in danger. I don't know if we can make it. If so, what were the moments and how did you overcome them? Yeah, there was some of them, but I had one especially six months after we raised the first one. The first round was a small, small check, like 10 months of runway. Just to launch the product, we didn't get any salary, anything else. It just was for the product and the developers. We launched the product in July, late October. We were running out of cash. We had, at that time, around 15,000 reais, dollars today in the checking account. And I called Fernando and I called Ricardo, my co-founders. I said, you know, all the reserves that you have, be ready to use it. Because I was trying for like two months 
tried to raise a round and nobody wanted to invest. I tried to go to the funds. They said like the valuation is too high. There's a lot of risk involved, but the market is so competitive. You are so young. Uh, I don't see any edge of the product and all the excuses. And I called him. So be ready to use all the reserves that you have. Fernando sold his car, sold his apartment. He went back to live with his parents. We did a lot of sacrifices to grow this company. And I had an investor now, but at that time he was just a mentor. We met him, I think it was before the launch of the scenes. And this investor, he called me. It was a Friday night, I think 9 p.m. I was closing my thing and go home. And he said, Hey, I did some intros. No one wants to invest. I think there are a lot of doubts in the investors' minds. I don't know if we're going to make it. My suggestion is for you to call all the clients that you have. We had at that time like 250, 300 clients. I suggest you to call your clients, tell them that you are shutting down the company and think about a new business. And I said to the investor, you are not the same. We don't have plan B. We're going to make it. I have some other investors that are still talking and I believe that they're going to close. I reduced a little bit the valuation and I went back to some energy investors that were interested. One said, ah, I'm going to invest 100K another, I'm going to invest another 100K and then came more to 100K and then we ended up raising 1 million pounds. But like, we almost, almost had to close the company. I remember one time I went to a whiteboard and put all the names of potential competitors and companies that I knew that were trying to enter the space. And I said, hey, you have all these competitors and we are the company with less cash balance, like less error. We're going to change it. We're going to change this history. And that's what we did. We didn't have this feeling of like we are almost bankruptcy, running out of cash. We are almost shutting down the company. The feeling was we're going to make it, going to find a plan to surpass this barrier. And also, sense of urgency, economics is very important to have a sustainable business, look at the margins. This creative method of constraint, now the market hide out. We have a bubble. We don't have more capital for 2022. Many companies are going to do down rounds. We're going to see companies shutting down and things like that. We were comfort. We didn't fire anybody because of finance or economics matter. We fired because of performance, but not for extending the runway. We didn't need to raise capital. We still have a huge part from the survey that raised in the bank. But this mentality was created back at that time. And how is that constrained, rich mentality impacts the company as the company grows? How do you make that scalable? Great question. For around one year and a half, we were growing with positive margins, profitable. And then, okay, now we have a huge amount of capital. What are we going to do with it? And of course, we did mistakes. We tried to be aggressive in the market and spend more than the return that we were looking for. At first, we did it. I think it's natural when you have a lot of capital to use this money, sometimes in the wrong way. But for me, I always try to see the key elements that I need to invest in order to reach the next milestone. What is the next milestone? The next milestone shouldn't be raise a new round. Next milestone should be, let's reach a certain level of revenue. Let's reach a certain number of clients. This was the way that we managed all this momentum of growth. And it's hard. It's hard to have almost no capital. And it's hard to have a huge amount of capital because with no capital and with a lot of capital, you're going to make bad decisions. With almost no capital, you're going to think in the short term only. How we survive for the next week, for the next month, for the next quarter? How do we do it? So don't think strategic when you are running out of cash. And when you have a lot of capital, you don't have control on all this spending. You don't have control on all the procedure. You don't know if you're investing the money and you're burning with efficiency. And what's the right amount of cash? What's the amount of runway that makes you feel comfortable focusing on the goals instead of chasing the growth investors? That's a great question. The first thing I would say, raise the first round of capital in order to have this feeling that, okay, we have PMF and now we can control our destiny. Then it depends on the strategy that we have. 
launching your product, opening your operation, go international, understanding your operation and your go to market strategy with the economics out to be the CAC. I don't like how limited CAC that much, more than payback and CAC. And what are my next milestones? And raising enough capital that you need to reach the next milestone. See, what's that? Can be five million, ten million, can be twenty million. What was that moment for you and Conta Simples when just like we had the product market fit, we are ready to scale? What were the signs of that? What was the realization of that? How did yeah, you define that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first one we decided to use it as a North Star metric or revenue, and then we decided to focus in a niche market with a very specific product was the corporate cards platform. After Two months, we started to see our revenue growing 15, 20% week over week for one, two, three, five, 10, 12, 15 weeks. And when you are in the third week of growing like 20%, you don't know that we're in product market speeds. But it's exponential growth that is sustained. Our cost of acquisition was almost zero because we're growing because of the referrals. And it's really spectacular because it's not a consumer product. It's an SMB product. Yeah, we understood that many of our clients, they belong to communities. And those communities, they had mentors, gurus, and they were referring to the things because they used the product and the product was good for them and other people. And then we did an interview with our clients. There's a article in the Superhuman blog about product market speed. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing article. So we asked our clients, how disappointed you would be if our product didn't exist anymore? And we saw a very disappointed rate in 80%. So growing 20% week over week, cost of acquisition almost zero. The customers that would be very disappointed if it didn't exist anymore was like 80%. After three months, we reached profitability. So we had like positive PL after taxes. Okay, I think we're in the front market speed. And what was the product hook for SMBs? What was the driver of this 80% deeply disappointed customers? Access to financial services with a good UX. This was mind-blowing for them, and that's why they would be very disappointed that you didn't exist anymore. I want to touch a little bit on the market dynamics. You mentioned that you looked at the examples on global markets. You looked at examples in France and Asia, and then at Brex in the United States. And Brex had a very similar go-to-market strategy, right? They introduced corporate credit cards for SMBs and earlier this year they pivoted out of the space saying that they no longer fit the needs of SMBs and they're going up markets and they're also doubling down on the SaaS products. So I'm wondering what's your take on that and do you see any kind of similar strategy going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. First, the SMBs at which market? There are very different types of SMBs. We have SMBs that are profitable, SMBs that are not. Right now, we are seeing a lot of investors, especially for later stage companies like Frax, pressure to having a better business model in terms of margin. So when we look at a specific vertical of the SMBs, they do a lot of wires, they have significant amount of deposits, but they don't generate revenue. And probably they won't generate revenue in the next three years, but they consume a lot of cost of the company, support, product development. There are frauds and we need to create fraud prevention and things like that. All this process, we have a cost involved with. So if you're not a pure SaaS, we have a transactional revenue, probably you're going to face this problem. You're going to have clients that are not profitable. And if you're trying to increase your margin, at some point, you're going to need to take some decision. And it is a very difficult decision because you are writing off a huge part of your customer base. So in terms of number of clients, it is a big impact. But when you look into the financials, PL, margin, and things like that, 
it's going to be positive. In the long term, we have one investor from my combinator. She's also set at Brexport and she was telling me margin drives growth. Having a business model that you can increase your margin, you can use part of it to grow more, but you need to grow more, not in terms of number of clients. You need to grow in terms of PNL. Profits, revenue. And if you ask us if we have something lined with this decision, yeah, we do because we face the same problem. We have a part of our customers that are not profitable. I like one thing that you said that not all SMBs are equal and you actually have to discriminate them based on the cohort. So when you look at the cohorts of customers, what are those that are profitable and have the potential to grow versus those that are deeply unprofitable and need to be uh, intentionally churned maybe? Yeah, that's a great question. It's very simple. The amount of capital that this company has or the amount of cash they have in transactions in products that concentrates the revenue, especially cards or credits. For example, if you have a customer that only makes picks, it is a problematic customer because you don't make money with picks and you pay some cents for each picks. That's why segmentation is extremely important for SMB. Let's talk about regulatory challenges a little bit. How will you adapt to the intercharge fee reduction that was just introduced by Brazilian central banks? Yeah, that's another hot topic at the moment after the announcement of Central Bank. So this one is not new, especially for the fintechs into the space. This is something that is being discussed since last year. But, but how we are addressing it? First, we always had the mentality that we cannot have a business model that is fully dependent on prepaid interchange. You need to have other revenue lines. So right now we are introducing other products. One is the credit line. Second thing, we are evolving our software. Probably we can charge for some part of the SaaS. This is something that we are studying. Prax, Ramp, and some others, especially in Europe, Tool, Mozu, Tide, they charge for the software because in Europe, the cap for interchange is something that is for a long, long time. And the other thing that we're doing, we are implementing the post-pay traditional credit card, the hate rails that don't have the cap. We now can mix and migrate some clients or most of them to the new rail. We're evolving the product. It's something very important for us because after the decision of the central bank, now we only have the dates that we need to fully migrate and also the strategy to do the repricing in terms of how we can charge the card and how we're going to do the go-to-market of this product. And how do you think this decision will impact the future of fintech ecosystem in Brazil? It's going to be a negative impact, in my opinion. I saw some some institutions argue that the city of Central Bank was the right one, but I don't think so. I think we're going to see less companies trying to enter into the space, so the competition and the innovation is going to be reduced. I think this is also a movement for the Central Bank to incentivize big transactions. So we're going to see more initiatives, central bank going towards peaks and open finance. I think this is good. But the real point is a lot of startups that did many, many improvements to the society in Brazil, all those companies was like directly impacted. That's why, in my opinion, this was a bad decision of the central bank. If you were to start Conta Simplest today, knowing that you'll only have a quarter of your management fee, what would you do differently? We can like depend on interchange in our business model in the mid long run. This is one thing that we always thought about, but I would have more focus and visibility in what would be the new revenue lines besides interchange and prepaid interchange. Try to create these new revenue lines earlier. 
I will do this differently. If everything goes right, what would Conta Simples look like? What will success look like five to 10 years from now? That's a very different question because in my opinion, five years from now, 10 years from now, we're going to see a completely different infrastructure for financial marketing in Brazil in general because of blockchain, because of open finance, the evolution of the technology, and not only into this space of financial market, but ERPs, open API, and things like that. So it's going to be completely different. And for Contasimples, I see Contasimples as a main player into this environment, integrated other players using open finance, using Pix, but having the, the intelligence to do high quality financial products, credits, corporate cards, automated transactions. Because in my opinion, Pix, a checking account without fees, good UX, customer support through WhatsApp. This is already outdated. Understanding the complexity of the operations of the companies, of the SMBs, understanding what they need and how to mitigate risks of doing a credit for them and create the product with technology and with integration is going to be key to be alive and having the competitive advantage. Tell me, what's the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned while being an entrepreneur in Brazil? The most counterintuitive thing Next to grow. When you are like entering the market, you think, okay, I need to try to go for everybody, for open every vertical. And this is very hard because a startup, you have a lot of constraints and it's going to be almost impossible to create high quality products with a good competitive advantage to serve everybody, every vertical at the same time with all the go-to-market strategies. It's almost impossible. So in order to dominate space, you need to niche. You need to focus in a small league. And when we did it, it was a time that we grew Faster, we hit the PMF, we started to be profitable. This is very counterintuitive, but it made a huge difference for us. How do you sell this idea of starting small to venture capitalists? If you build a company with high growth potential, you need to sell it to them. But a lot of people, especially in emerging markets like Brazil, they think, oh, you know, the market is too small. Who needs that? The software for plumber kind of thing. Yes. What's the counter argument to that? I think there are two ways. If you all have the operation, you need to sell as you want to be like the full markets. And when you start to operate, you want to try to do this by niche. This is the first thing. If you're already operating, it's selling with the economics of the market. And of course, having a clear visibility of how you're going to open new markets. So I think when you grow, when you have a sustainable unit economics and a clear competitive advantage in terms of product, it doesn't matter if you're focusing on niche. It matter more what's going to be the next steps. Fair enough. I want to move to rapid fire. I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate okay. your immediate responses. The first question is, what's one book or piece of content every entrepreneur should read and why? Piece of content and book. Piece of content is niche to win. It was an article. I Googled it. It was amazing. And it was telling how to sell to investors. And the book, I would say there are many, many really amazing books, but hard things about hard things for me, it's, it's one of the best because you understand the entrepreneur journey what are the trade-offs what are the dilemmas what are like the bad things that you're gonna face it it's a real life book i read this before starting my first company what fuels your athletic passion and how does that make you a better entrepreneur i used to play basketball a lot so i played basketball during almost eight years basketball was a big part of building my character building my values in terms of commitment responsibility teamwork how to deal with failures and after i started called simple i started to run as well and i think this is a very different sport because it's you and you and that's it and you it's your mind so for me running it's a way that i prepare my mind to the hurdles to the sacrifices to the 
okay, I run 10 kilometers and now I'm going to run 15. I've never run it. I'm going to go for it. And doesn't matter what's going to happen. If it's rainy, if it's sunny, if it's snowy, I'm going to complete it. And kind of like creating this mentality that I run not to prepare my body, but to prepare my mind. And I think running is a very individual sport, very like loneliness sport because it's you with your thoughts. We need to run next time I'm in Sao Paulo. I try to run seven miles every day. Well, right now it's almost every day, but overall I get what you're talking about. Seven miles, like it's 15 kilometers. It's 1.4, I think. 1. It's, uh, yeah, 10, 11. So, yeah. But it's a mental exercise. It's less of a physical one. Exactly. What was the last time you changed your mind about something important? That's a deep question. I would say leadership capabilities and skills and how to run a company. It's very different to run a startup with 10 people than a startup with 200 people. And probably it's going to be very different when we reach like 2,000 people. So you always need to change the way you think, your beliefs, your day-to-day work. So you always need to improve. And my reflections and my thoughts from the last semester, I would say I need to enter less into the operations and take more time to be strategic. It's very hard because I'm an operator, so I want to feel the things going and moving. But now I need to think more strategically. I need to stop for like three hours and just think, 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 think. And I understood that it is more important than try to run operations because I have extremely good people running operations now. It was one thing that I kind of changed my mind. Do you find it hard to delegate? I find it's really hard to delegate anything. It's really hard because you always tend to think that the way that you do is the best way. And most of the time it is not. If you were to hit rewind and make one decision differently, what is that one decision that you would change? Another deep question for you. Another deep question. Almost a therapy session. <laughs> but that's a good question. I would say to have more courage initially to take risks. When you're starting a company, you don't have a lot of things to lose. So have bolder decisions faster, I think, could increase the pace of learning and adapting and evolving the business. Funny enough, one of my favorite motors, you cannot fall from the floor. Exactly. You cannot fall from the floor. Perfect. I'm going <laughs> to write it out. <laughs> if you were an alcoholic beverage, which beverage would you be? I don't drink that much, but... I would say the bottle of Johnny Walker. Keep walking, keep going, don't stop, and don't quit. And I think music is like a strong, strong drink. It should be struggling to be an entrepreneur. Mine is a bottle of good Bordeaux because it gets better with age. That's more about your ability and how you can only evolve with time. I prefer your answer. I'm going to use this next time. <laughs> Rodrigo, thank you so much for your time. It's been an ultimate pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, Olga. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for the invite. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The J Curve. It was such a pleasure to have Rodrigo as my guest. And I really appreciate Rodrigo sharing the story of the humble beginning of Conta Simples. I think it's super inspirational for new entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs to be. To learn more about Conta Simples, go to www.contasimples.com. And to hear more from us, subscribe to our newsletter on thejcurve.com or follow me on Instagram at Olga Maslikova with KH. Thank you for being with me today. 